This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hi, friend. Welcome to this episode of Decoding Obesity. You know, I'm starting a new segment on this podcast because I wanted to do something different. I'm going to call it the Journal Club. So what I want to do is get some guests on the show who are experts in their fields and really talk about one particular article that may be sort of like a seminal article or something that's going to be of value to you, something that might help kind of decide physicians or has helped us, you know, formulate the guidelines that we use in the management of obesity. Well, I want to welcome Dr. Lee Ettinger again on my show. For those of you who do not know, Dr. Ettinger has been a pediatric nephrologist for nearly 17 years at Hackensack University Medical Center in North Jersey. He has now left his medical practice as a pediatric nephrologist and has decided to focus primarily on uh, pediatric obesity. And he has started offering telemedicine services and he founded Dr. Herbie War in uh, 2021, through which he tries to help uh, pediatric patients, especially uh, who are suffering from obesity, especially in the area of New York and New Jersey. And he also has a blog for parents to learn more about plant-based eating for their family's health and has a Facebook group for education and entertainment. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Ettinger. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I think this was a very interesting article that we kind of decided to talk about. So people, we're going to be talking about this article that is titled 10-Year Outcomes of Children and Adolescents Who Underwent Sleeve Gastrectomy weight loss, comorbidity resolution, adverse events, and growth velocity. Let's just dissect the title a little bit, Dr. Ettinger. Okay, yeah. So this article came to my attention in December of 2021 when it was a headline in a the AAP News, the American Academy of Pediatrics News, which is an official news magazine of the AAP. And they had a headline there that goes out to all the pediatricians, and it says, Weight Loss Surgery Safe, Effective for Youths. So I wanted to learn more from the article and discuss it with you. Yeah, I think it's important because, you know, this is one of those things, surgery, like I talked about in the episode that we did on surgery, that it's something that's that people are kind of uncomfortable with, especially when, you know, when it pertains to their children or their, you know, adolescents. So let's see what this study really showed. And let's just start by talking about what the background was. Why did we need this study? Yeah, you're absolutely right about people being uncomfortable with this concept of operating. Even adults, a lot of the patients I talk to, they feel like it's like the easy way out or it's quitting on the whole diet attempts and weight loss attempts that they kind of see it as not the necessarily the first option, but the last option. But when you see studies like this showing that it's safe and effective over the long term, it kind of makes you wonder whether it should be an earlier consideration for families. Right, right. So how was this study really conducted? Let's just dissect this study, you know, and go deeper into this. So first of all, I'll say that in 2019, the AAP came out with guidelines encouraging doctors to consider weight loss surgery for adolescents with obesity, especially with severe obesity, because there, according to the AAP and their research, there have been no studies to date 
demonstrating significant durable weight loss among youth. So actually this group, the AAP was saying that it should be considered and should be made more widely available for adolescents. And they made that recommendation based on actually two studies out of Saudi Arabia that showed short-term and medium-term, so three-year and five-year follow-ups of patients who had undergone bariatric surgery and the assessment of their risks and benefits. So what's interesting is now this that same group out of Saudi Arabia came out with this 10-year outcomes. So I would expect that the American Academy of Pediatrics was happy to see the benefits and minimal risk associated in the long term after they had recommended uh, this kind of procedure back in 2019. Yeah, I think that's what, to my understanding, that's what probably it is that they kind of wanted to show the efficacy and or the safety of uh, bariatric surgery, even if it's done in kids and when they're followed along for 10 years. And that's what essentially what it was, right? Right. So this group out of Saudi Arabia, they had a cohort of 2,500 children that they operated on, children with obesity, age as young as five up to 21. And they followed them for three years. And this was a study situation. So they had an internal review board monitoring the ethics of the study and you know the interim outcomes of the study. So after three years, they published in 2014, this was a safe and effective procedure with minimal side effects or risks. And in 2016, they published again with longer term. And then in 2021, they published again with this 10-year, this even longer term follow-up on this group. So it was an observational study. They just, they didn't randomize or try to select a control group or try to figure out how to best intervene. They just kind of had a group of young people that they wanted to operate it on that were agreeable, that first went through a six-month attempt at diet and lifestyle and were not able to lose more than 10% of their body weight with that attempt. And so then therefore, qualified and met the criteria for undergoing the sleeve gastrectomy, which is the kind of bariatric surgery where they make the stomach much smaller, like from the size of maybe a cantaloupe down to the size of a banana, uh, so that uh, you are very restricted in the volume of food that you can eat. And so they've been following this group over three years, five years, 10 years, and adding to it along the way and seeing like you would with the adults, are there any complications, surgical complications, any long-term follow-up kind of complications. But with the added twist, and when you're dealing with the younger kids, does this affect their growth? And you really actually need that longer-term follow-up to make sure that you're not interfering with how the child can grow. I think that's the most important thing to look for is, is this going to affect the long-term growth and development of the child? Right. Certainly, if you're restricting their nutrition in such a way, then that is a concern. As we say in pediatrics, you only get one chance to grow. As soon as your growth plates fuse, it's uh, the end of your ability to grow. So, uh, And if you're going to be operating on children as young as five prepubertal children, you still want to get that maximal ability to achieve their destined adult height. Right. So let's just dive into the results that they found. I think they were very fascinating when I was reading the article. Not surprising because, you know, we see fascinating results even in, in adults with the bariatric surgery and sleep gastrectomy that we have now, the most popular uh, surgery that's done for obesity. Right. So they looked at how much excess weight was lost. So they 
figured out the young person's ideal weight, which was their 85th percentile BMI. And anything above that was excess weight that they were hoping to help the person lose with this procedure. And they found that in initial, in the short term, there was an 80% loss of that extra weight. And then in the long term, there was still maintained a 71% average loss of that extra weight. So a very effective surgery, even in the long term, uh, with a lot of weight lost and weight maintenance. And that's what they describe as very similar to the adult population expected. But what was interesting was that reversal of comorbidities was better than the adults. So before surgery, 10% had type 2 diabetes, 9% had abnormal lipid profile, and 15% had hypertension. And at follow-up, there was 71% had improved their diabetes, 57% had improved their lipid profile, and 58% of those had resolved their hypertension. And that was actually a little bit better than what is expected in the adult studies. And the reason that they say that this is possible is because the adults have had the complications for longer periods of time, and there's more damage done from, say, someone with diabetes having glucose toxicity, where the continual high glucose has actually damaged the pancreas and uh, make the diabetes more permanent. And with hypertension, certainly you get damage to the blood vessels over time. So the fact that the young people were able to reverse their disease better than the adults, it may be an indication that you want to be thinking about this surgery sooner rather than later, because you might not get as much benefit if you wait until the person is an adult and has these complications for longer periods of time. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I found very fascinating about this study was the fact that, you know, even after the surgery, now there is some scar tissue, right? And as kids are growing, that scar tissue is going to grow with them. And one would think that that would probably lead to some sort of complications in the future. But surprisingly, the rate of complications was very, very low in their study. Yes, actually, and it was similar to the adult rate of complications. So yeah, uh, the scar tissue did not seem to affect them in the long term as they grew, like you raised the concern. Right. And I mean, like they mentioned that, you know, the the leak from their staples was like 0.09%. That's a very, Mm -hmm. very small number. You know, we do have to supplement a lot of vitamins and have to change the diet around once patients have the surgery. But there are certain risks of, of course, you know, developing neuropathy from vitamin deficiencies. So they did see that. But again, it was a very small number, I guess, if they're followed along on a regular basis and, you know, their vitamin needs are met, then this would be expected to be at a very low rate. Right. And certainly just going back to the scar tissue, I just want to add that this was the laparoscopic procedure, not the open procedure. So the laparoscopic procedure, they just make very tiny incisions and go surgeons go in with their cameras and equipment versus a larger incision that might leave more scar tissue. So that might have been to the benefit. And when when picking what kind of surgery for the young person, picking the surgery that would cause less scars may benefit them. But yeah. What you bring up a good point is that there, after this, such a surgery, there is a lifetime need for vitamins and that your dietary pattern changes that you have to eat a lot of small meals. So actually, I want to ask you in, in your experience also, what do you think of this six month trial period where the person and they do this in the adults too, and often insurance companies will only pay for the bariatric surgery after this six month trial period that 
it's almost selecting for the person who has more trouble with a dietary regimen because you're picking the person that can't lose 10% of their body weight in six months. So are you picking the person that's more likely to fail with the requirements that are needed after the bariatric surgery with the particular way you have to eat and the particular way vitamins that you have to take? I've always wondered about that. What's your impression? You know, it's interesting because I talked about this on the prior episode with Dr. Alan Brown and Dr. Jennifer Paisley. And, and, you know, basically what ends up happening is that for any bariatric surgery that is done, you need to kind of have, like for any procedure, we need to screen patients, right? Who's going to be fit for surgery? And I think that's very important to understand the process that they go through is kind of understanding, will they be able to sustain it for long-term? Because it's going to be a, a long-term change that's going to be occurring. Along with that, of course, there are psychological assessments that need to be done to make sure that they are appropriate for that surgery. And I think that's where the six months, and interestingly, actually, she mentioned that it's not just six months, it's six months to two years that they sometimes spend with the patient even before the patient goes under the knife. So there's a lot of pre-planning and post-planning that goes on before patients go for surgery. Right. Yeah. And part of that is time just spent with the patient or in this situation with pediatrics, time spent with the family right. to get an assessment of, of what their situation is like and are they going to be able to handle the requirements after the surgery. You want to pick the family and the patient that's going to have the greatest success. Yeah. And, and I mean, even then, this is a new thing for people, right? So it's I think it's also about getting them ready to kind of accept what the new normal is going to be. Right. New, the new normal. That's a good way to explain it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, Dr. Edinger, what, what do you think was the biggest criticism? I think for me, the biggest criticism was that, you know, there's observational. There's no, there's no way to compare it to a control group, per se. Right. Yeah. So just observational, not what they say, interventional. So who knows, would some of these patients been able to lose the weight on their own? finding a diet that worked for them, that suited them, and maybe reverse these early conditions like the hypertension and the diabetes. Could they have done it all by themselves without the surgery? We'll never know. So yeah, there is that criticism. I have another criticism that I can start with, with a joke. Sure. <laughs> um, this is, so I'll start this criticism with a joke. Is um, This uh, guy commits a horrible crime, a young guy, and he gets sent to jail. And he's put in a jail cell for life. And he's with another lifer, another person who's in jail for life. But that person's very, very old, let's just say near the end of his life sentence. But the young guy has an idea. He steals a spoon from the cafeteria and he's going to do like a Shawshank Redemption. He's going to dig his <laughs> way out. So he's uh, whittling away at the, at the flooring and with his little spoon. And after many, many years and eventually a decade, he's got a pretty good tunnel and he's going to dig his way out. And uh, the old guy in the cell with him just kind of watches him, never says anything about it. And after about 10 years, the guy's digging, digging, got a very good tunnel going, and, and then he hits water. So the young prisoner crawls out of the flooded tunnel, and he's there gasping on the ground. And the old prisoner says to him, oh, yeah, you can't dig that way. There's a river there. And the young prisoner says, well, how did you know that? And the old prisoner says, oh, yes, when I was a young man, I tried that, dig that tunnel also and hit the same river. And so the young prisoner says, well, why didn't you say something? And the old prisoner says, well, no one publishes negative results. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, joke, the joke is, what if there was down the street from this practice, there was another surgical group doing surgeries on a similar population and was having horrible results and was showing that their patients were having complications or having growth failure and 
would that other group publish such results and look like the worst surgeons in the world? Or would they have just gone out of business because all their patients were getting sick and dying? So that's uh, one of the reasons why you really want to do a control study or an interventional study and have a control group uh, versus just uh, presenting like this. So we'll never know if there was another group that was having worse results and that this surgery is not recommended because, like I said, no one publishes negative results. <laughs> right. Well, I think to that criticism, I think when I spoke to Dr. Brown and Dr. Paisley, the understanding that I got was that there is enough data to support a metabolic surgery in kids. So I don't know if I would take that criticism <laughs> at that, but I think I think the important point is to understand, you know, if there was a control group, how would they have fared compared to people who underwent surgery? And I, I think that's a fair argument. Right. And there are research consortiums, like in the United States, there's this teen longitudinal assessment of bariatric surgery, teen labs, and there's a, several other smaller groups that are following bariatric surgery patients in pediatrics for shorter periods of time. You know, this group in Saudi Arabia has a head start. Right. Know, they've been doing it longer, mostly because the AAP came out in 2019 and said that this was a good idea based on the results from right. Saudi Arabia. So they have a head start. So yeah, there are these research consortiums. And yeah, certainly you would hope that if this turned out to be very dangerous, that the IRBs would know about it and they would be monitoring and and there would be oversight. So uh, I think 10 years is a long enough time for people to kind of figure out even if somebody is hiding something. <laughs> no, I'm not accusing anyone of wrongdoing. No, no, doing. no, I'm just I'm saying, not, I'm just saying that, you know, if the surgery were that risky, I think that's, again, my personal opinion, I do not know, but I think 10 years would be a reasonable enough time mm -hmm. to kind of get the skeletons out of the closet if there were any skeletons. Now, I mean, of course, every procedure yeah. has its risks. Of course, there is, you know, there's nothing that's going to be 100% safe. And there's not going to be anything that's right. going to be 100% effective. There are always going to be downsides. Right. This is very reassuring overall. Uh, but like to the point, 100% effective, they lost 70% of their extra weight. They didn't lose 100% of their extra weight. They lost 70%. Still great. And certainly studies have shown that if you just lose 5% of your extra weight, you reduce your risk of heart disease and diabetes and hypertension, stuff like that. So yeah, certainly they're more than uh, accomplishing what right, would right. be recommended. So I think the other thing was that, you know, there was, of course, the control group part. But I think the fact that there was nothing comparing the use of medications early on to surgery we know surgery is very, very effective, but we do not know that if we start medications early on in children, how effective would that be vis-a-vis -vis surgery? Right. That would be a nice, well, what is the standard of care? We don't right. know what the right. standard of, should we be comparing it to no surgery? Should we be comparing it to no surgery and medicine? But overall, I think it was a, it was an interesting study. At least they had, you know, enough data, 2,500 kids that they followed for 10 years, which is a big number to kind of, you know, even have and following them along for 10 years and showing that, you know, even in those kids, the 2,500 kids that they did surgeries on, the risk of complication was low and they had very fantastic results. Even 10 years after the surgery, they maintained the lost weight. How do you think this is going to impact the practice? Right. In the adult world and also now more so in the pediatric world, 
only like what 1% of people that are eligible to benefit from a bariatric surgery go through with it are offered it. It just, like you said at the beginning, it just thought to be such a last ditch effort or a plan B or C or D or the quitter's route. You know, there's just this impression. <laughs> but when studies like this come out that really show its benefits and minimal risks, maybe the mentality will change and more pediatricians, like when you see articles like this in the AAP news, maybe more pediatricians will think instead of sending someone to the nutritionist or to the endocrinologist to send them to the bariatric surgery. Yeah, I think that's important to understand because at least in the obesity world, the obesity physicians, we understand that, you know, everything um, happens in tandem. It doesn't have to happen sequentially. Like you don't start with lifestyle and then you add medication, then you do surgery. If you need surgery, you go to surgery directly. But I think that perception would probably change, or I hope it changes, you know, amongst other physicians as well, that if a person really needs something, even if it's medications or surgery, they go for that directly in addition to, you know, the lifestyle changes that they're making. Well, I mentioned to you before the, about this concept of locus of control, right. that I like to try to figure out what the patient was going to benefit from most, and that's this concept of locus of control, where someone has an internal locus of control, they believe that their own hard work and diligence and talents will take them to their destiny, where someone has an external locus of control, believes that some other person with more power or luck is going to bring them to their fate. And no judgment about one is better or another. Like, for example, I, I like to read about nutrition and learn about obesity. And I have an internal locus of control about my health. But as soon as the dashboard light comes on and that I need an oil change, I don't want to change my own oil. I take to another more powerful person. I take my car to the mechanic. Right. And now, so that's where if the mechanic sees that I have an external locus of control that I want my mechanic to fix the car, they'll fix the car versus a mechanic who thinks I might have an internal locus of control says, okay, here, take the oil, take the car home, take the can of oil, get under your car, turn the, you know, they want to teach me how to change my own, own oil, but I'm not, I have an external locus of control about the oil. So, but then my, when my mechanic is sick and they want to go to the doctor and they want the doctor to fix them, they want the surgery or the pill. They don't want the doctor to say, okay, here's how you get better. Go home and take this, eat that kind of thing or change your diet this way. So I try to get a match when I was dealing with pediatric hypertension of what the family would benefit from. I'd offer them, hey, you okay, so your child has hypertension. Do you want to try diet and lifestyle, salt reductions, better sleep, exercise, things like that? If they have an internal locus control, they want to try those things versus the family that might have an external locus control that says, no, no, doc, we're here. Please just give us the pill that will fix you're the more powerful person, like my mechanic in the other example. So when someone comes with obesity, yeah, I think it would be a benefit to try to figure out their locus of control. Do they want to learn how to the diet and lifestyle message that they're going to go home and really embrace? Or are, do they want the other more powerful person, like the surgeon, to fix their, right. their issue? And again, no judgment. Of course. It kind of... Uh, some people want one thing, some people want another. Right. And so, yes, I meet someone who wants me to fix them. And if I say, oh, no, here's how you go fix yourself, they're not going to benefit from that. But if I meet someone who wants the doctor to fix them, then I try to fix them or I find the surgeon to fix them. Kind of thing. I think you said that very well. But I want to point out to the listeners that, you know, 
even though we're talking about locus of control and changing what we need to change, I think it's important to understand that a lot of times people have with obesity will have good lifestyles, great healthy lifestyles, and they're still not able to lose the weight. And that kind of alludes to the, the whole physiology and the whole science of obesity that sometimes just lifestyle changes will not work, right? And you may need medications or you may need, may need surgery. It's at those times that kind of, you know, the physicians have to kind of guide the patient and, and the patients have to understand that there's something else that's at play over here. Yeah, yeah. I was reading in a Facebook group about doctors who care for people with obesity uh, getting feedback from patients who have tried a new medicine, for example, that and saying things like, oh, I'm 50 years old and I've never felt full right. until I took this medicine that improved my feeling of satiety. I just never felt full. So that person who never feels full, even if they have the best internal locus control, but they never feel full, how are they going to help themselves? the medicine they came to the more powerful doctor who prescribes <laughs> them the medicine that does the trick yeah right not all doctors are more powerful a lot of mechanics no, all the mechanics the i know are powerful <laughs> all the mechanics are powerful not all, but yeah trying to trying to figure out how to best help someone well yeah i think it's uh, we get the point i think it's not about power it's about that area of focus that you're in if you're a physician, of course, you're a physician. If you're a mechanic, you're a mechanic. I, I cannot fix my car. I have no idea right. how to fix my car. <laughs> I am right. powerless there. Pretty much, I agree with you. We're on the same yeah. page. Well, I think this has been a very fun and interesting discussion on this article. I think this at least puts into perspective that even you know, long-term, surgery is relatively safe for our younger population, younger generation, especially with the burden of obesity, you know, kind of ballooning, even in the pediatric and adolescent age group. So this was very fun. Thank you so much, Dr. Edinger, for joining me. And, um, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I'll see you all next time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time. <laughs>